Welcome to the Apocalypse Podcast. This is an online Bible study of the book of Revelation as taught by Pastor Andy Kroll. You can find more resources online at www.thepulpiteer.com backslash revelation. Hello again, this is Pastor Andy, and this is uh, this is going to be um, the chapters 4 and 5 of the Revelation Bible study, the second part to the, um, I think is week number 4 uh, podcast, so I want to get that up. And I want to begin by looking at chapter 4, but, but to do that, I want to examine the reading that uh, goes along with this, and that's Isaiah 6 and Ezekiel 1. And so if you've read through chapter 4, and then you look back through Isaiah 6, um, when when you read through that, you're going to see some uh, some of the elements from Isaiah six and from Ezekiel one are going to be found in in Revelation four. The first one is um, it says uh, in Isaiah six, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lofty, the hem of his robe filled the temples, uh, and then seraphs were in attendance uh, in attendance above him. Each had six wings. With two they covered the faces. With two they covered the feet. With two they flew. So already you have um, the Lord on the throne, uh, which in verse one, and you find that in verse two, the second part of verse two, in Revelation four, and then uh, the seraphs. So you have these angels uh, with with six wings, which is similar to the living creatures uh, who have those who have wings, and uh, and then also the seraphs begin in Isaiah six singing. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Um, in in Revelation 4, you have them singing something a little bit different. Holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty who was and is to come. Uh, Lord God Almighty and the Lord of hosts are actually going to be uh, similar. The Lord of hosts is, is like the Lord leading the army, so will be similar to the Lord Almighty. Uh, verses 9 and 10 in Isaiah 6, um, he says, Go and say to this people, keep listening, but do not comprehend. Keep looking, but don't understand. Uh, make the mind of this people dull. Stop their ears and shut their eyes. This stuff is pointing to, if you remember in the letters in chapter 2 and 3, where it says, uh, To the one with the ears, let them listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And so uh, you get this uh, sense in, in prophetic literature that um, if you are given ears or if you have ears, you're going to listen, and listen is, is connected to and acting upon it. And so uh, just kind of acknowledging some people have ears to listen, some people don't. Uh, so that's there. I'm going to go ahead and look at um, Ezekiel 1. And if you look at Ezekiel 1, if you go to verse 4, it says, As I looked, a stormy wind came out of the north, a great cloud with brightness, and around it fire flashing forth continually, in the middle of the fire something like a gleaming amber. So you get this fire and this flashing that's going on, just like uh, in in uh, chapter 4, verse 5. You get this uh, theophany thing going on in, uh, in Revelation. Um going to look, let's see, in, in chapter 5 in Revelation, in verse 5 of Revelation 4, it says, Coming from the throne are flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne burn seven flaming torches, which are the seven spirits of God. And so, um, 
which by the way that that stuff is going to come from uh if you listen to the rapture part of this uh from an exodus uh with the theophany of god uh coming down to the mountain and you get this uh, lightning and and thunder and clouds and fire and that sort of stuff uh and so this is a a, a normal theme throughout this sort of literature ezekiel uh chapter 1 verse 5 talks about the four living creatures and, um, and then with the four living creatures, one of the differences is in Ezekiel, the, the creatures each, they had four faces on one head. And, and then Revelation is four different creatures. But the four living creatures in, in verse 6, uh, each had four faces, each of them had four wings. Well, uh, in Revelation, they had uh, six wings, which was more similar to the Isaiah reading. Let me find the the creatures, and it's in verse six, so verse ten. Sorry, of chapter four. Um, well, that's the twenty-four elders. I'm sorry. Uh, the four living creatures in verse eight. Um, each of them had six wings, full of eyes, and and that sort of thing. So, anyway, if you go back to Ezekiel. You're going to find that their wings touched, which is kind of like the cherubim and the temple, which is, for example, out of Exodus 25. Uh, you find that they had four faces. They were the human lion, ox, and eagle. And so um, in Ezekiel 10, you're finding that they've got, you've got the same uh, animals, except uh, there's four faces on each creature. Uh, the lightning coming from the fire in verse 13 um, all four of these creatures are full of eyes. And the eyes, by the way, are, are symbolizing the omnipotence or seeing everything. You also have this crystal dome in uh, verse 22. And if you look at that in Ezekiel 1 verse 22, it says, Over the heads of the living creatures there was something like a dome shining like crystal spread out above their heads. Under the dome their wings stretched out straight toward one another. Each of the creatures had two wings covering its body. Um, and this dome actually has to open, or in verse 25, there came a voice from above the dome, above the heads, when they stopped, they let down their wings, and above the dome was something like a throne. Well, this uh, dome is kind of like the sea of crystal that's in Revelation 4, 6. The throne is, uh, at the foot of the throne is this dome, and it's kind of like the earth underneath that is, is Ezekiel's picturing it, so he's got this dome above him, but the heavens looking down, there's the sea of crystal that uh, is, is kind of played out as this dome from Ezekiel. You get the thunder of the Almighty in Ezekiel 1.24. Uh, you hear about the throne again in verse 26. And in verse 28, um, there's the splendor like a rainbow. Uh, so there's the splendor there, which is similar to Revelation 4, um, verse 3. And so... One of the things I guess I wanted to point out again is as John is seeing this vision, he's uh, the he's trying to describe a vision of the heavenly throne room, and to do that, he's got to paint this picture. And the paint set that he has is this Old Testament imagery, and so that's what he's using to to try to figure this out, or to try to describe this and kind of show this. And so um, Isaiah six and Ezekiel one. The, for Isaiah and Ezekiel, their uh, call uh, visions are, are 
they're see there's these guys are all seeing the same thing and they're trying he's trying to describe what's going on there but i want to look at the throne room in revelation 4 and kind of uh, just kind of briefly go over some of the things there you notice that it talks about the gems that the the one seated on the throne um, looks like jasper and carnelian uh, if you go to exodus chapter 39 and read verses 8 to 14, you get these 12 jewels that are on the high priest's breastplate, and they're, they're in these, uh, um, they're in rows, and you get these 12 jewels. Well, the first jewel on there is carnelian, the last jewel is jasper, um, and so uh, what we have here is that jasper and carnelian are like the last and the first. And that's another way of kind of saying God is the, the first and the last, but God is also the high priest or the king, um, as this is, he looks like the jewels that are on the breastplate of the high priest. And that kind of points out another thing. So um, how familiar would you have to be with the Old Testament to pick up that reference? And it's important for us to understand that um, Jewish folks in the first century would have and we typically do not. And so we're kind of battling uphill uh, just because of our uh, lack of familiarity with the Old Testament. And uh, that's not an insurmountable obstacle. We can learn about it. But it should uh, force us to kind of go at the text with a little more humility to realize that they're pulling out references um, to parts of the Bible that we're not incredibly familiar with. I mean, not many people have memorized the order of the jewels on the high priest's breastplate. <laughs> uh, the emerald rainbow is the next thing I wanted to, to get into. And so around the throne is a rainbow that looks like an emerald. Uh, it's interesting to have an emerald rainbow. And I guess this is another way of saying this is uh, symbolic language because to have a rainbow of one color kind of defeats the purpose of what a rainbow is. So it's kind of giving us a couple different uh, things to think about here. The first thing that I would point to is uh, the rainbow reminds us of the covenant with Noah in Genesis 9 or uh, the covenant between God and creation. Um, it talks of God's faithfulness to creation. And one of the ways to kind of think about what's going on uh, with with the flood is um, the flood waters for ancient peoples, the seas or, or these kind of primordial waters in Genesis one, they they represented uh, forces of evil and chaos. So when God created, God was moving away from chaos and dissolution to to order and and to something. So a lot of the first part of Genesis is even just setting boundaries between day and night, land and sea and that sort of stuff and uh the flood event in genesis uh, 6 and following is is really um the threat of of sin to dissolve creation back into nothingness or chaos and uh one of the things that god does there is god makes a is it makes a covenant with no one with all of creation that that god is not going to allow that to happen um, in, in Genesis 6, God is basically saying, look, if you choose chaos and I'll let that happen, and, and then uh, it's described as uh, uh, part of the description of the flood is not just rain, but that there's angels at the gates of these rivers that are just kind of letting loose the waters. Well, the way the ancient people would have understood that is you have 
angels uh, or you've got this kind of heavenly reality of uh, of waters of um, chaos being set free and this is the the result of, of kind of human rebellion and sin against God well uh, the covenant then between um, be, between God and creation then is, is found in Genesis 9 and that rainbow is there um, and, and so that's kind of bringing that to mind the other thing is the em- emerald part um, in some lists of the tribes, not all of them, but in some of them, the emerald is the the third jewel that's found in the priest's breastplate. And in some lists of the tribes, like Deuteronomy 27, Judah is the third tribe listed. So the emerald on the priest's breastplate, and we've already seen that's referenced by the Jasper and Cornelian, the emerald is the third one, and there's some lists of the tribes of, of Israel, and Judah's the third one. Why would that matter? Well, this is... Uh, already, chapter 5 really gets into dealing with Jesus, but chapter 4, already looking to the throne room and the one seated on the throne, is already pointed with this emerald rainbow, is already pointing towards the presence of Christ uh, uh, in and amongst the throne. And so that, that translation makes sense to me because it's, it's pointing to Jesus. Uh, the 24 elders with thrones and then the white robes and the crowns and whatnot. Um, there's a couple of different ways you can understand the 24. It could be the 12 tribes of Israel plus the 12 apostles uh, is one, I think, very good way to think about it. Another way that makes sense, too, is there were 24 elders who were needed for worship in Israel. You can find that in First Chronicles 24 where the leaders of the worshiping priests are divided into 24 divisions. But uh, regardless, the 24 is, is a way to represent the people of God in worship. And so whether you do the 24 elders in Israel worship or if you do the 12 tribes and 12 apostles, either way, this number tends to represent the entirety of the people of God who are present with God. So it's like the, the church glorified or, or the people of God glorified. The white robes, uh, crowns, and Christ's throne are all elements from the seven letters to the churches. White robes is found in uh, chapter 3, verse 5. The crowns in chapter 2, verse 10. Christ their own in chapter 3, verse 21. And uh, you can see then you have, this is, again, the church glorified, the people who have um, lived faithfully and passed through death uh, to be present around the throne room. And, and so this this vision is showing us this and just representing these people in the presence of God with the things that were promised for people who were faithful. Um, and then you get in this uh, coming from the throne, verse 5. Coming from the throne are flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder. Um, that verse is that's an important part. Uh, there's a worksheet in the back of your materials that's called Thrones and Theophany. And this phraseology occurs four times in Revelation. And it's in, in 58 of your materials, you'll see this, and you can look, and there's a spot to kind of fill in how stuff adds on to it. This phraseology gets built upon each time it's used. Um, it's used in here in chapter 4, verse 5. It's also used in chapter 8, verse 5, uh, during the time of the seventh seal. It's used in chapter 11, verse 19, around the time of the seventh trumpet. And chapter 16, 18 to 21, around the time of the seventh bowl. A thing that should stand out to you there is it's used in the seventh of each of the sequences. 
So there's something going on here with this kind of phraseology and the fact that there's more added to it as you go. And so I want you to kind of keep track of that as, you, as you're writing that down in your materials and filling out that worksheet. Each occurrence builds on itself and creates this kind of crescendo effect. And so as the vision moves forward, it's kind of it's, uh, crescendoing as it goes. And this is kind of one of those important phrases that signifies to us something that's going on. What it's pointing to, at least in part, is, again, this theophany. If you look at Exodus 19, where uh, the presence of God comes down upon the mountain, you get these these elements that we see here of lightning and thunder and that sort of stuff. And so it, as, as this crescendos, it's like um, the volume's turned up. It's like God's getting closer, the vision's getting clearer, that sort of thing. And so that effect comes with it. And, and that's something that the first readers would have picked up upon. I mean, they're... It's a oral culture, and as they're hearing the story, they're they're going to notice this repetition of patterns and that sort of thing. The next thing I want to go into is in verse six. It says, "In front of the throne, there's something like a sea of glass, like crystal." I already pointed back to um, the Ezekiel passage in that how that's connected to the dome. But another important thing that's going on here is. Um, Remember, as I talked about the sea being this kind of uh, source of primordial chaos, this is kind of this is how the ancient peoples would understand it. Um, this is backed up in Revelation, by the way, because the beast from the sea is in chapter thirteen. This beast arises from the sea. Again, the sea is this symbolic place of of evil and chaos. Uh, you also get the Red Sea illusion in chapter fifteen of, of passing through that and that sea coming through and consuming uh, Egypt. Uh, um, but in the Roman and Jewish pool of images, the sea represents the abode of demonic and evil powers. Which, by the way, explains by the time you get to Revelation 21, it says the sea was no more. And that's not because God doesn't like sailing or seashells or something like that. But it's, it, it's, it's a way of saying that the source of demonic and evil power is no more. What is it saying now that it's in the throne room? Well, one of the things is it's, it's uh, smooth and calm as crystal. And so it somehow is under, it's being subdued. And at the foot of the throne implies that um, God is still God over even this. And that uh, that God is sovereign um, even when there's evil going on. And if you put that together with Revelation 21, we can see that God is sovereign and that someday evil uh, will not be around, will not be here. Um, looking at the four living creatures... Revelation 4 focuses on praising God as the creator God. So even naming these as living creatures focuses on creation. Four has a number. Their numbers are symbolic in, in the book of Revelation. Four tends to symbolize uh, creation or earth or that sort of thing. And so these are kind of, this part of the vision is these are kind of like stand-ins or fill-ins to represent the creatures of the earth. And we see that even more by looking at what they are. The lion, the ox, the human, and the eagle. Lion would be the king of the wild beasts. The ox would be the king of the tame beasts. Uh, humans would be the pinnacle of creation. And the eagle would be like the king of the air. So what this is, is these are kind of representative of the totality of, of created beings. What is, uh, what is created then orders its stance towards God uh, or orients itself towards God in chapter 4. Creation uh, focuses in right relationship with God on worship. God is holy and powerful and eternal. And so the four living creatures 
praise God day and night without ceasing, they sing. Well, the right relationship between creation and creator is this relationship of worship and and uh, this uh, relationship of giving praise to God, um, the Lord God Almighty who is and was and is to come. And it says in verse 9, whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks, um, the 24 elders fall before the one who's seated on the throne. And so you already get this uh, image of the four creatures worshiping God, and then that ripples out a little bit further to the 24 uh, which would represent the the people of God, and so you're already getting this image of of worship triggering worship, um, and so the elders falling down and casting their crowns, um, and them casting their crowns is uh, one I guess easy way to think of this is it's kind of like the exact reverse of what happens in Genesis three, in Genesis three Eve and and Adam decide to be like God to decide for themselves what is right and wrong and to take charge of their own lives. Um, casting down your crown is, is taking down, taking any, any choice authority or whatever you have and throwing it at the feet of God. And is a, a very powerful and symbolic way of just, uh, of giving your life and your service before God. In other words, saying, um, it's not about what I want or don't want. It's about God's will in this. So their stance uh, before God is that God is God is God in their lives, and God is God in, in the way they they act. This is the reverse of the fall. And so they, they sing the song, um, worthy to receive honor and glory and power and, and that sort of stuff. You are worthy to our Lord. And God is worthy. It says, for you created all things. That for is, is showing a, a causal relationship. It's actually a relationship of substantiation. So God is worthy because of this reason. So the cause comes second. The effect is first. The effect is God is worthy. And then the cause is because he created all things. And by the, by the will of the Lord, um, they exist and were created. And so God is praised precisely for being creator. So we see God reigning in heaven in chapter 4, and this is what gives the power behind the vision in chapters 2 and 3. The reason that they can be told to be faithful, the reason that the, the Christians there can be told to hang on, is that it is God who is reigning in heaven. It is God um, who is in charge, and it's Rome that's only the pretender. God is the legitimate and real power that's in place, and Rome is the one that is temporary and that is passing away. The basis of reality is God on the throne, not Caesar on the throne. So they can be told um, to hang in there in that. Uh, uh, Dr. Bauckham writes in, in his wonderful book, The Theology of the Book of Revelation, he writes, on earth, the powers of evil challenge God's role and even masquerade as the ultimate power over all things in claiming divinity. But heaven is the sphere of ultimate reality. So what is true in heaven must become true on earth. Um, and, and so that's a very powerful thing. What is true in heaven must become true on earth. Um, that's why they can be told to be faithful. Dr. Coaster, uh, who wrote the, uh, uh, another wonderful commentary on Revelation, he sees chapters 4 and 5 as central to the entire book of Revelation because worship is, is the worship of the one on the throne that orients the rest of life throughout the rest of the book. The implications ripple out uh, to each end throughout the rest of the book. Um, and so Domitian demanded to be called Lord and God, but in 4 and 5 we see who the real Lord and God are. 
And so Dr. Colster writes, uh, by giving readers a glimpse of God's heavenly court, John presses Christians in the seven churches to see such popular displays of power as garish imitations of the true sovereignty that belongs to the Creator, who alone is truly worthy of being called Lord and God. By seeing this vision of the heavenly throne room, it helps the readers see reality as to as what it really is. And that Rome, even though everybody else sees them as the ultimate power, to see them as just uh, as kind of poor pretenders in place, that the ultimate power is the one on the throne in heaven. And so we have this false worship of the emperor versus the worship of the one on the throne and of the lamb. And uh, again, Domitian began encouraging and making people refer to him as Lord and God. Um, and so he made them do that. But worship in heaven was spontaneous. It wasn't forced. And worship in heaven involved every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea. Um, now, Rome may have tried to make everybody worship, and, and the way they would do that is they would capture and conquest. But the one on the throne had everyone worship because he created everything. Rome created nothing. It just captured stuff that was there. The one on the throne created all things. Uh, another contrast, the lamb conquered by the shedding of his own blood on behalf of others. The lamb won citizens for heaven by his sacrifice. Caesar wanted to shed your blood to get you to worship him. The lamb does no such thing. The lamb is not out to shed your blood. The lamb sheds his own blood in order to rescue you. Caesar wants to shed your blood or capture you. The lamb sheds his own blood to set you free. And we have, uh, Dr. Bauckham writes, false worship, such as John portrays in the worship of the beast, is false precisely because its object is not the transcendent mystery, but only the mystification of something finite. In other words, false worship, what it does is it takes something finite and temporary and puts it in a transcendent place which just makes it false. It's an untruth, just by definition. That real worship is worshiping the one that is eternal, and that is the Creator God. So that kind of uh, uh, wraps up where we're at uh, in chapter 4. We're going to move on to chapter 5. All right, chapter 5 begins with um, begins with a problem, actually. Uh, there's uh, the one in the throne, so God, has in his right hand the scroll that needs to be opened um, but the problem is that there's no one who's actually able to open it. And the scroll being in the right hand of God is, is significant because the right hand would uh, kind of signify uh, not only power, but uh, the execution of the will of the one uh, in whose hand the scroll is. And so the scroll represents on some level the, the purposes of God. So uh, how are the purposes of God going to be fulfilled in regards to creation? God is a creator God. Uh, there's brokenness and sin and whatnot, and then now this creator God has a scroll that would be the purposes of God in regards to creation, and uh, how is this going to happen? And there's no one in all of creation that can actually open that scroll that's uh, that's worthy to do so. And so uh, this creates a problem, and John weeps. Uh, John weeps because uh, how is creation going to be saved? If this uh, purpose, if God's purposes, uh, which are kind of waiting, are not yet carried out, um, John weeping, by the way, is a, a 
fascinating and a pretty poignant picture of what's going on. If you think about the the two kind of classes of people in the letters uh, in chapters 2 and 3, you have people who are living faithful lives, who desire God above all things, and, and then are paying some sort of a price for that. And, and then you have other people who have compromised and have bought into the way the world does things. Well, John's weeping shows that he recognizes the brokenness in the way that the world does things. His uh, This deep uh, desire of his heart is for the purposes of God to be played out, this, which just shows his faithfulness and in it not being able to be played out. Um, he, he weeps bitterly. Then one of the elders turns to him and tells him not to weep. Uh, which kind of brings to mind, what does this say to us about the role of the people of God? If the elders are representative of the people of God and the presence of God, uh, then what does this say about the role? And I just thought that was kind of fascinating, that the role of people of God, he turns and he says, don't don't weep, for the line of the tribe of Judah, the uh, root of David, has conquered. And that really is um, that really is a good summary of what our job is, to spread this message that the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. And what comes next is a very important contrast that I want you to keep in mind because it occurs both here and it occurs in chapter 7. And there's this, uh, what happens here is you're going to hear one thing and see another. John's going to hear something and then see something that's going to be different. So he hears that the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. Now the lion of the tribe of Judah, that comes from Genesis 49.9, with the blessing of Judah, where he's told he's like a lion. Root of David uh, is, is, uh, comes from Isaiah 11, or like the root of Jesse. So the root of David's pointing towards uh, being in the lineage of a king. The lion of Judah is a symbol of power and might. And when it says conquered, you get this image in your mind of this mighty and powerful conqueror. I just keep thinking perhaps with a sword or something like that. Um, note this, though, that conquering was found in each of the seven letters, uh, each of the letters to the seven churches, to the one who conquers, they'll receive this. So you know conquering is important. So we need to pay attention. What does conquering mean in God's kingdom? What does conquering mean in the book of Revelation? And this conquering, we find out by what we see, which comes next. And so if we look at uh, chapter 5, I'm going to look... Uh, verse 6, Then I saw between the throne and the four living creatures, and I think a better translation of that, uh, looking at, at the Greek uh, from what I've read, is uh, he's on or amongst the throne, uh, or amidst the throne, or somehow. So we're locating more on the throne. Um, anyway, I saw uh, between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders a lamb standing as if it had been slaughtered, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are seven spirits of God sent out to the earth. We hear this mighty kind of image, but we see something drastically different. We see a lamb who was slaughtered um, in the midst of the throne with seven horns and seven eyes. And that should give us pause, because according to the way we think about things in, in the earthly realm, there are definite meanings to the power of a lion and uh, a kingly form and conquering. But we find out in heaven, conquering looks like slaughtered, which redefines our reality. Conquering and victory for God look like humble submission and self-giving love. That turns everything on its head. This contrast that we see in chapter 5 is a very stark contrast that should 
point out to us that the way we perceive reality in this kind of earthly way is not the same way that heavenly reality functions. The lion who conquered is really the lamb who was slaughtered. What does it mean for the souls who have been slaughtered for their testimony in chapter 6, verse 9? That the, the one who was slaughtered is actually the one who conquered. What does this mean for those who are called to conquer in chapters 2 and 3? What does their conquering look like? Does it look like them pulling out a revolution and killing the Roman guards? Well, that's not consistent with this image we have here at all. Furthermore, the seven horns. Horns are uh, symbols of power. Seven is a symbol of, of completeness. Uh, that's one of the other symbolic numbers in the book of Revelation. Uh, think of it this way. In Genesis, we find uh, we hear about seven days, creation in seven days. So things come to their fullness or completeness in seven. Um, we also have seven eyes. Seven eyes comes from Zechariah 4.10. These are the seven eyes of the Lord, which range through the whole earth, it says in Zechariah. So the eyes are representing omniscience again, or, or the knowledge of all. Uh, the one, the lamb has all these eyes, can see and know all these things. Well, if you remember from, uh, if you go through and read the letters to the seven churches again, there's all these times where the Lord says, I know your works, or I know where you live, or that sort of stuff. Um, the Lord knows, the Lord has eyes, as omniscience. The lamb, as a symbol, of course, is from Exodus 12, which was one of your assigned readings here, which is uh, the Passover. So I want you to think about that, to bring that to mind, the Passover. The situation of the Passover is, is um, the people of God were enslaved by the superpower at the time, Egypt, and uh, they were under this oppressive rule. And then the lamb, the Passover lamb, was slaughtered. The people were marked, the doorways were marked, and judgment passed over them. This bringing a lamb into the vision is going to speak very directly to uh, the people in first century Asia Minor, where they again are under the oppression of a world power. And uh, we get even further into chapter 7, then again chapter 13, about um, this sort of marking and separating and judgment um, coming upon those who are not marked. And so, uh, also, I want you to think about how, how did God judge Egypt? And this is going to come in, especially uh, in chapters 8 and following, where we get uh, the trumpet and the bowl plagues. When God judged Egypt, there were these plagues. You remember the plagues, and the plagues were like gnats and frogs and blood and water turning to blood and hail and all sorts of stuff. Um, those plagues were God's way of judging the gods of Egypt. Um, if this Passover lamb is importing this imagery and this kind of framework into this, I want you to, to keep those plagues in mind when we get into some of the, um, some of the judgments of God in uh, the following chapters. I think the book of Exodus is a very important book for us to, to think about as we try to understand what is the imagery means in the book of Revelation. All right, so uh, we get this, uh, the lamb that was slain and um, the four... The four living creatures in verse eight, he the lamb takes the scroll and the four living creatures and the twenty four elders fall before the lamb, and they start to worship and they sing a new song. I, I want to pause here. As far as the narrative structure, you've got this sense where 
there's this problem that's presented in the narrative flow where uh, we need the scroll opened in order for God's purposes to be done on the world. So we have the salvation project. God's, God's dealing with the brokenness of creation. He's the creator God being faithful to creation. And uh, we get the lamb uh, who was slain, who's able, he's worthy to open the scrolls. So you would think as far as the narrative uh, flow goes, the next thing would be the lamb opening the scroll and somehow defeating evil. But that's not what happens. Instead, there's like this pause where we launch into worship, which seems like kind of a sidetrack at first. Um, but, but I want to notice, again, sometimes uh, scripture goes in ways that we wouldn't necessarily expect. And for some reason... And I want us to consider this. For some reason, the vision is telling us something here that where we might think an action is necessary uh, as far as uh, the Lamb doing this thing. Um, the scripture is telling us that worship is something that is, is crucial here. Worship is the direction that the text goes here. And so we should pay attention to that. So the one on the throne was worthy um, to be worshipped because... He created everything, sustains everything. In verse 9, we find out why the Lamb was worthy. The Lamb was worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, uh, for you were slaughtered, it says. And again, that's another causal connection there, right? So we have the effect first, and then the cause second. So the effect is that the Lamb is worthy. The cause is the reason he is worthy because he was slaughtered. And by his blood he ransomed for God. Saints from every tribe and language, people and nation. So, the the it could throw us off. Why would you worship someone who lost? But we find out the very reason he's worthy to take the scroll is because he was slaughtered. Because it looks like a loss on the cross. Um, but because of that, that's the very reason that he's worthy. And and with his blood, then, he ransomed people. He won people. And he won people from every tribe, language, people, and nations. Those are the fourfold description. Remember, the number four is, is symbolic. And so this is of the earth, tribe, language, people, and nation. Now, ask yourself this. When Rome sought to get people to worship Caesar, how did they get people from every tribe and language and people and nation? Well, Rome went out and conquered by by bloodshed of the enemy and by forcing people into the kingdom. The way the lamb does this is the exact opposite. Instead of making the people's bloodshed, the lamb sheds his own blood and then brings people into the kingdom by his own blood of every tribe and language and people and nation. And so they're worshiping the lamb there and the, the, the four living creatures, 24 elders, um, and then the worship expands. Uh, it says in verse 11, Then I looked, and I heard the voice of mighty angel of many angels, and it was in the myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. That number uh, is, is just literally supposed to mean as many as you can imagine, kind of beyond your reckoning, that the worship kind of ripples out to these angels, and the angels include, it's just included in all these angels, and they start to sing, Worthy is the Lamb that was slaughtered to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might. And again... You get that the lamb is worthy precisely because he was slaughtered and he's worthy to receive excuse me, power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, blessing, a sevenfold 
blessing that uh, the Lamb is receiving in this praise. And so it's rippled from the, the four creatures to the 24 elders to now all of these angels, and it doesn't stop there. Then worship increases and expands again. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and under the sea and all that is in them. So let's see. In heaven, earth, under the earth, and in the sea. That's the fourfold. So it's all of created order. I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, and in the sea, all that is in them singing, to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. And so now the the worship has gone from in close to the throne with the four creatures to the 24 elders to including this myriad of angels to including uh, every creature in heaven on earth and under the earth and the sea and all of that stuff. And worship has just kind of rippled out and expanded. And all of a sudden we have all of creation worshiping not just the Lamb, but it says to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb. Uh, receive blessing and honor and glory and power. And at first we thought this was kind of a pause in the action. We're like wondering why isn't the Lamb doing something to enact the purposes of God? And then we find out that it is precisely through worship that the purposes of God are accomplished and that in worshiping the Lamb that all of creation is uh, gone back into right relationship with the Creator God uh, from whom they were... Or they were um, uh, distance from and that, that relationship was broken and so the worship of the lamb there's something on a cosmic level happening uh, where that restoration of relationship is, is going on there it's, it's an amazing thing um, and and one of the things that I want you to think about in the book of Revelation is to ask what does it mean that the lamb is being worshipped because the lamb here is clearly being worshipped as God um, there's no real doubt there that they're worshiping the lamb and the one on the throne. Worship is ascribed to God, but now we're we're finding worship of God in the lamb. And in verse 13, again, it's explicit that it's to the lamb and the one on the throne. Jewish people wouldn't do that. It's very clear uh, to the Jewish folks especially as they go through all the stuff in idolatry in the Old Testament, that, that the, the Ten Commandments, the first two, have to do with this, there is one God, and you don't, come, you don't follow idols. So why would people, why would this Jewish movement begin to worship Jesus? And the only conclusion you can come to is that they believe that Jesus was God. Um, if you read chapter 19, verse 10 of Revelation, you find John tries to worship an angel. And the angel tells him, you got to knock it off. You only worship God. So throughout the book of Revelation, it's, it's, it's consistent. You only worship God. But yet here in chapter 5 and in other places, Jesus is given either properties of God, as he's described, or he's receiving worship that belongs to God. And so the, the only conclusion you can come to is that Jesus is God. Jesus is being presented as God in the book of Revelation. And this is a profound thing, and I think because we're 2,000 years later, we take for granted this idea of Jesus as God, and we don't realize how shocking this is, this uh, Trinitarian idea, um, that, that Jesus would be not only the Son of God, but somehow God himself, the part of the triune God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, but this is an important thing, and, and it's important for us to realize, so the book of Revelation, uh, I gave it the later dating in, in the later 90s A.D. Some people date it in the 60s A.D. 
Um, but even in the 90s, to realize that a book written towards the end of the first century still has this uh, well-developed idea of the worship of Christ as God. And it's important because there are some people uh, today who tend to take the stance that uh, they, they'll say or they'll, they'll kind of, I don't know, teach that the church later on kind of made Jesus God or voted that Jesus was God. Um, there's the book that was popular a few years ago, The Da Vinci Code by Dan Brown, made this claim that during the Council of Nicaea um, in the 4th century, in 325 AD, he said that they voted that Jesus was God. And uh, that's it really frustrates me. Uh, one of my favorite theologians, David Bentley Hart, wrote that the Da Vinci Code was, was evidence that, uh, that an illiterate person could write a bestseller. And that kind of shows, I guess, my stance on the book. And I'm not mad because sometimes people feel like you get mad, that Christians get mad because it's like, oh, Jesus couldn't have been married and had sex and stuff like that. Like sex is some sort of dirty thing. Well, no, that's not why Christians don't believe it. Christians don't believe that Jesus married somebody and had a kid. It's not because we think sex is dirty. It's because there's absolutely no evidence that that actually happened. And besides that, this idea that uh, Christianity was this purely political movement that Constantine took advantage of in, in 325 and voted in Jesus as God is, is so incredibly insulting to this, this whole thing. And in the first place, we see in the 90s AD in the book of Revelation this very clear understanding of Jesus as God. This is an idea that happened before that in Philippians too in the Christ hymn uh, where Paul writes about uh, Jesus not understanding equality with God as something to be grasped you know lowered himself condescended and, and humbled himself to, be, to come to earth as a, as a servant this these ideas are very old and it's an it's an old part of Christianity this is at the part of from the very beginning and for him to treat this as some sort of a political stunt in 325 AD he doesn't know who gathered for the council of Nicaea these were people who had survived uh, some horrible persecution by the Caesars at the time and to the point where the guys who gathered there, some were missing right hands, some were missing their right arms, some were missing their right eyes, who had all been, they'd all been either cut off or gouged out because they refused to recant of their faith in Jesus Christ. And so they suffered personal damage and, and physical harm. Some lost, you know, family members, people that they cared about uh, to persecution because of their faith in Jesus Christ. There was one guy who, as he gathered, both of he had no use of either one of his hands because under uh, Emperor Licin Licin Licinius, uh, he was his uh, nerves were burned so badly he wasn't able to use his hands anymore. These were the guys that gathered to affirm their faith in Jesus Christ. And the things that they did have to vote on were things like, what do we do with people who recanted their faith and now want to join back in the church now that it's safe? They had to figure out what to do with the people who weren't willing to be martyrs. And I get a little bit irritated when, uh, when kind of modern writers from the comfort of their offices and their lazy boy chairs typing away things um, cast aspersions on my mothers and fathers of faith who were filled of, with tremendous courage uh, to, to face um, damage uh, and physical hardship and even death itself because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And they believed in him because like it says in chapter 1 verse 18, he says, I, I was dead and now I'm alive forever. I hold the keys to hell and death. And they believed in the one that could raise their body even after the worldly powers destroyed it. And so when we have passages of worship 
here in the book of Revelation, and they're worshiping the Lamb on the throne, we need to really think about the full implications of what that's saying. That's worshiping Jesus Christ as God, and that this is something that had been around in Christianity from the beginning. Um, so that's it. Uh, that's my, my rant on Dan Brown. Uh, but also just uh, pointing us towards the, the beauty of the worship of Christ in Revelation 5. Um, so for next time, uh, be sure to uh, read the next few chapters that are assigned. Also complete the worksheet called Seals, Trumpets, and Bowls. And I want us to notice some patterns that are going on in the book of Revelation in these patterns of seven. And so we're going to look at those. Uh, thank you very much.